Hi, welcome to the podcast, Commonwealth Magazine's weekly podcast about politics and policy and the people who practice and influence both. I'm Jack Sullivan, reporter for Commonwealth, along with Bruce Mould, the magazine's editor. If you think the state treasurer's office is the keeper of the Commonwealth's cash, you'd be right. But if you think the office is simply the state's bean county, you'd be way off the mark. We're joined today by state treasurer Deborah Goldberg, who's serving her first term in the office but is no political neophyte. She was a two-term selectman in Brookline, as well as a candidate for lieutenant governor in 2006. She also brings some business acumen to the position. Her family started a grocery store in the North End around the end of the 19th century, and that later turned into the Stop and Shop supermarket. Welcome, Madam Treasurer. Good to see you, Jack. We're glad you're uh, with us today. So given all of that background, how much were you ready to be the uh, state's chief pot uh, overseer? <laughs> Well, it is a plant that you sell, so I guess it's not too different than spinach at the supermarket. But um, candidly, it was uh, I was a surprise. I was as surprised as a lot of people to see that the ballot question had designated me. Yet, on the other hand, um, having studied this for more than fifteen months and uh, having the Alcoholic Beverage Commission under the treasurer's office, which is a surprise to a lot of the other treasurers in the country. Uh, we certainly have the background and the expertise to to lead, create, and uh, execute on the Cannabis Control Commission. And uh, that was uh, a little bit of a joke, just uh, for the listeners. Um, the uh, bill, that, the law that we're talking about, that was passed uh, in 2014, that legalized marijuana gives the um, primary oversight for uh, the um, regulation and legalization of marijuana to the state treasurer's office. And, and you're right, it, it does confuse a lot of people. You know, why would the treasurer be in charge of it? But one of the things, um, you have been very vocal in wanting a delay in um, implementation of the law, wanting well, some Well, actually, changes. I was um, vocal about that prior to the question passing. Um, what I have said consistently to members of the legislature and the governor and others, and have been very open and transparent with um, the proponents of the ballot question is that uh, even though there was a six-month delay put in by the legislature, that that didn't mean I was delaying anything I was doing. And in fact, prior to the ballot question um, even passing, we had gone out and done requests for qualifications for folks who would be doing the software system that would track from seed to sale and also the e-licensing system because as a business person, I totally get how hard it is to start from scratch, implement a system that's mandated by the Cole Memo and the federal laws to track seed to sale, need an e-licensing system for licensing people, and how long it is to go and rent, hire people, rent space, um, and have all the systems in place in order to start executing. And that's really what it was about. And I, before the six-month delay, I said to um, the proponents, it passed. This is the will of the people. We've been already working on it. At that point, it was already a year we'd been working on it. And we're proceeding along. We are not sitting back and doing nothing. Well, you you have made inquiries to uh, the new administration in Washington 
um, to get some guidance on on what their view will be on uh, legal marijuana. Have you gotten any feedback yet from them? I haven't got feedback from them, but I, I it was very important for me to be on the record on this. We actually recently had a meeting, um, our folks, with other treasurers who are now dealing with the very same issue. And uh, they're Republicans. They're actually, there's an independent treasurer from Maine and ourselves on the issues around banking and federal guidelines, which is really, which are really critical to treasurers on what's the cash doing and the collections for taxes. And so um, one of the things about the Cole Memo of 2013 is it requires this tracking of seed to sale to make sure that the marijuana that you have in your state is not crossing state lines and not um, and preventing any interaction with illegal entities or cartels and are protecting kids. And so consequently, that is one of the biggest investments that you have to make as a state, as an entity, is in that software, those software systems. And so this was really driven by um, the need to have fiscal discipline around this and what we will be spending as a state up front. And, and so and, now I'm on the record. And, and just to uh, clear it up for anybody who's listening, the Cole Memo was the uh, Department of Justice memorandum uh, under the Obama administration that um, very loosely gave guidance to how to operate uh, legal marijuana. Or, but it uh, did businesses. require the seed to sale tracking. Right. So... Um, I think Jack was sort of asking, though, have you gotten any feedback from the federal government? I, I noticed today Time Magazine has a piece, Jeff Sessions says marijuana, mm. only slightly less awful than heroin. Yeah, I've heard him say that. Um, what's your, because that seems to be a big cloud hanging over this you whole. You know, it's a cloud, but um, we, that's why I think that some of the, Federal officers, not just from Massachusetts, but elsewhere, have also had made a request of the Attorney General. But until there is uh, something that comes out of the Department of Justice, we are proceeding as is directed by the Cole Memo. And he was a little bit vague about that in the hearings before he was approved. Uh, and you've heard um, Trump say a lot about state rights. So we are going to continue going, and hopefully they'll actually come out with a statement. But if they leave it open-ended like this for a tremendous amount of time, we will go by the call memo. And this may be a dumb question, but the legislature is going to pass apparently some legislation to tweak the, the law passed by voters. You're saying you're moving ahead. You have been moving ahead. So once that law comes out, which I think they were talking about June or mid-year or whatever— are you, when do you think you're ready to start processing well, people? What's going licenses? on with us right now is we are ready to go ahead and um, appoint the three commissioners, the executive director, um, the general counsel. Um, we've been talking to the Division of Capital Asset Management and Maintenance about office space. Um, we're ready, and we made a request through the supplemental budget in order to have resources to get up and going because we can't do the request for proposals on the software system until those things are in place. And I suspect um, that will be one of the most complicated things that we go through is both getting the proposals, going through them, choosing a vendor, making sure it works, 
and uh, that it, you can't do anything until you have that. And no matter what, the, that's why I said the, de the deadline for accepting licenses is less than one year and one uh, next about one year and one week from now. Hmm. And when you um, when you take a look at it from the treasurer's standpoint, one of the big issues is the revenue. Whether there will be sufficient revenue to cover regulating the industry and and for the uh, ancillary uh, um, problems that people see. Have you taken a look at it and said it will bring in X amount of dollars um, under the current tax scheme? So what we've done is exactly what I did in the business world. Um, worst scenario, possible scenario, and best scenario. But I'm also basing it upon speculating on what certain costs will be, um, what we hope to um, spend on the software system, what we hope to uh, have to pay three commissioners and all of our staff, what we hope to pay. We looked at the um, Gambling Commission and their startup costs. We looked at the Health Policy Commission and their startup costs. Um, I tend to run a little leaner and meaner because the ABCC is almost too lean and mean. Um, we really could use some more help down there. Um, but so we, you know, we are looking at how this will all work out. And um, I do think, however, uh, when you look at the excise tax rate of 3.75 and you contrast it to 37% in Washington state, um, even the three other states that pass recreational marijuana are um, much higher than Massachusetts and we're a high cost place to live in and to hire people in, and there's a lot of competition for talent, I think that we definitely need to be looking at a higher tax rate. But it does, I'm not talking 37, but there's something between 3.75 and 37 that but, would be But more isn't reasonable. that a little misleading, though, to say that it's 3.75 because it's also the state uh, I was sales comparing tax excise tax to excise tax. When you add on the sales tax in Washington State, you're at 42. But when you look at the 6.25 here in the state, yes. which is 6.25 that they wouldn't have if, if they weren't selling marijuana. Washington State is higher than 6.25. 3.75 um, for the excise tax and then the local uh, option tax, we're looking at about 12%. So then uh, you're looking at 12% versus 42 mm -hmm. in Washington State. So I'm still saying somewhere in the middle. What's your, what's your estimates right now, The say, the first year, first full year of running of uh, what the what it would bring in under we the current tax We don't see anything scheme. coming in until fiscal year 19. So we will have sunk costs for the first couple of years. And about how much is that? Well, we don't have a full budget yet. We are working on the budget now, and we won't be able to have a full budget till we can actually begin, get some resources, hopefully from the supplemental budget, and then start interviewing people, hiring people, and actually pulling the trigger and getting real costs. So you, let, let's move into another vice area then. <laughs> you know, you, 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 Do you know that on other treasurers, like when we stand up and say, they say, say something that's unusual about <laughs> your treasurer's office. And for newly elected treasurers, uh, this is the first time they've heard me say, um, I have the lottery, I don't gamble. I have the Alcoholic Beverage Commission, I don't drink, and I have the new Cannabis Control Commission, and I don't smoke. 
And the, they're, they just look at me dumbfounded. They also don't have mass school building authority. They don't have a lot of the things that veterans benefits. I mean, there's lots of more traditional, very interesting things that the treasurer's office does that they don't have either. So they typically have unclaimed property, the pension fund, and um, we even run the retirement system, and a lot of them don't. So it's it's a it's an interesting conversation. Well, it is. So, and one of the areas that you're counted on is the lottery. Correct. I mean, that's uh, uh, if and trust me, when I was a selectman in Brookline, we were awaiting those unrestricted general. And it's what about nine hundred and sixty million a year that the lottery returns to uh, cities and towns. And uh, you will see me throw a party if we ever get over a billion. Any chance of that? What what would push you over to a billion? Well, I will tell you what we've been doing in the last year because, um, again, uh, I came out of a very competitive business environment where we had less than 1% profit margins and yet were able to maintain our competitive edge, and I brought that to the lottery. And so as I've seen declining sales and scratch tickets um, and challenges, I mean, we were very lucky with that unbelievable Powerball last year which really made the difference in the profit margins last year. Um, I didn't expect that again this year, and I warned the other commissioners of this. And I said, so we need to continue modernizing the lottery, but also um, finding more efficiencies, doing a better job. You know, when you have a mature business that's sort of the only show in town, which the lottery was, um, and a dedicated customer, you um, it sort of sold itself. But we've reamped and redone the way we do marketing. We have regional marketing strategies, um, which I also got from my prior life. And we developed efficiencies down to the point where I call it squeezing the last parts of the lemon juice out of the lemon, literally restructuring the, the um, way in which sale, the sales folks drive to the different locations and saving money on gas. And so we've been able to maintain those profits in these declining sales, boosting other things like um, monitor games. But we have been looking at online, which at first when I arrived, I was 100% against. But we've been able to look at it in a way that protects people, that does not um, make it easy for kids to go online and gamble. And... uh, how, and how do you no, prevent that? How do you how do you stop a, a fifteen year old? No credit cards. You have well, what, under the um, way in which I have proposed it. You will continue to support those brick and mortar retailers who are dear to my heart because I understand the foot traffic. I know what the margin is on a bottle of milk versus um, a pack of gum versus Tylenol, and I know why they need people walking in there. And so you will need to go into a local store to purchase the game card. So you will have to be over 21. And um, it is for a set amount. And then we're able to, um, research shows us, we are able to better follow compulsive gambling than when someone on their way to work stops at the gas station on the mass turnpike, goes to the convenience store to get coffee before they walk into their job, and then on the way home stops at the supermarket. You have no idea what's going on with that individual, but you do when they're playing online. Why should you know what's going on with that individual? Um, Because we can give people the opportunity to set 
limits for themselves, and that's what's going on down at Plain Ridge. And they say it's um, but that's very self. Re- sick. That's self-reporting. It's self-reporting, and um, but people can have the information of seeing how rapidly they're depleting and how um, if we see complete compulsiveness, uh, we can just notify people. You know how um, you you have your cell phone now and they tell you when you're about to hit your data limit? We can we will be able to do those kind of things. So we can say you've typically been like this and we just want to give you a heads up that this is where you're at. And is the sluggish, you know, you're you're trying to keep that return to cities and towns up, but because it is a mission driven business. It's sure. not a profit driven business. But it's um I get I think we've become used to sort of it just keeps growing, even even the percentage grows even as it gets larger and larger. But what's What's you're not? I was sort of surprised. The the study in Plainville showed that the casino there didn't seem to have a much of an impact on the lottery. And I'll tell you why. And I was looking for we, uh, of course, positioned ourselves. Um, I instructed folks to do an ongoing marketing study of what was going as a pilot to see what would be the impact. Um, we, thanks to the legislation done by the by the legislature in terms of casino gambling. Um, lottery machines and Kino are inside those buildings in very well positioned. They have to work with us and we we help select where the machines go. They've turned out to be a great retailer for us. I mean we they are a, their event they we are making a lot of money inside those buildings. However, um, I can tell you we did studies one mile, two mile, three mile, five mile out. There, they have had an impact on restaurants and local retailers. So we, as a lottery, may be doing much better, but there should be concerns about what do these behemoths that have lots of advertising dollars, um, what kind of impact will they have on some of the businesses in the local communities and the local economy? And how will all that be balanced? If MGM and Wynn turn out to be the same kind of um, opportunity for the lottery, that will be a good thing, and that will minimize the amount of negative impact when there are a limited amount of entertainment dollars that it will have on the lottery. But that's not really the issue right now. The issue is that we have a aging customer base. And as long as you are relying on retail point of sale, you're going to begin. You're going to continue a decline. And I think that um, when you look at uh, uh, Black Friday versus Cyber Monday, you're seeing the shift from retail point of sale to online. And I don't think that that's a shift that's going to change. Um, all the retailers are recognizing this. Um, they are closing retail operations left and right and pumping up their online uh, operations to save themselves. But when you're talking about having to go into a store to get the card to play online, it still seems to be a, it's not like, oh, I'll, I'll just sit down and start playing. Well, because I think that this is, um, you know, again, this is, um, we're not a for-profit. We are uh, mission-driven. And uh, we all, 
what we have to worry about the local retailers. They are really important to local communities. And um, in more ways than they, local retailers not only generate revenue for local communities, but they are participants in their local communities. You know, earlier today, you and I were talking about how when companies are no longer mom and pop operations and what that does to people who live there. And so we want to strike a balance. We really want to strike a balance. And we also, um, you know, I don't, I know I, for one, am not comfortable with uh, gambling on credit. What about debit, though? I mean, a lot of lotteries are going to that. And when you, when you use a debit card, you're, you're using your own money. You're not, uh, well, that, but that is cash. That is cash. I'm, you know, we're really concerned about, um, but debit cards aren't being, aren't able to be well, used I think right that now. You are could, they, or? Um, we're, ba- we're still a cash business, and that's something that we'll, we'll have to, you know, right now, we've asked the legislature to give us the authority to look at what is the right model. We want it to be lottery-like. We're not in the daily fantasy sports business, and so, um, you know, we, we're just looking for the authority to sit down and be able to say, we've got to look towards the future. And, and why the cutoff at 21? I thought it was 18 to gamble. Uh, or to play the lottery in Massachusetts. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I guess I'm thinking. You're right. Eighteen. Do you want to raise it to twenty-one? No. Misspoke. <laughs> 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 you were uh, you were a um, uh, selectman in in Brookline. Um, and, and you had dealings with the state, um, probably not as much as people think as selectman with, when it comes to the pension. Uh, you know, for, no, because Brookline has its own contributory retirement system. Well, they do. They're not in part of the state. They're not. They invest in the state. And they're happy with their investments, and we've encouraged them to put in more. And <laughs> so what, when you came to the treasurer's office, what... What were you expecting when you looked at the uh, the pension funds? Were you uh, the liabilities? Was well, it you know, when level? I was at um, when I was in the town of Brookline, one of the things that were were really important to me, which sort of is um, incongruous when you visualize Brookline, but um, I would start every town meeting with the statement: "We do nothing that Im- negatively impacts the AAA bond rating." And the other thing is, we had very very strict fiscal policies, and in fact, I convened a fiscal policy review committee that was very broad-based. At the time, it was all Brookline residents, but it went from Steve Crosby to Judith Curland and everything in the middle, and Ruth Ellen Fitch was the chair. And I said, I want you to look at all of our policies we had from the 90s on. And one of them was um, paying both into the pension fund and into OPEP. And then having a town school partnership where right from day one, when you make a determination of your budget numbers and you do a conservative balanced budget, you 50% of revenues go to went to the town, 50% went to the schools, and then there were hopeful addbacks if you had greater than anticipated revenues. And so um, Brookline's um, estimated rate of return was lower than uh, the states when I arrived. Uh, I immediately started, and I've done on this slow drop down on the estimated rate, yeah, yeah, rate of actuarial rate of return. It was at 8.25 when I was running. We're at 7.5 now. I went a quarter of a point, a quarter of a point, a quarter of a point. It's hard to manage, but it must be done. 
And so uh, I think I brought some of my viewpoint to how we have to continue transferring funds, that it's, um, but it's part of the big picture in our interrelationship with the rating agencies. And in fact, last year, um, the, our office organized a road trip with the governor and the secretary of administration and finance, her staff, our staff, and we did a road trip down and met with the agencies, which is highly unusual because we wanted them to hear our story, how we were working collaboratively, and how we were highlighting um, the responsibilities that we have to make sure that we keep the balls in the air, and also their understanding of, um, for example, whether it comes to our debt levels that we have no county systems to throw debt off onto that we do, which state a lot of states like Florida does. I mean, Palm Beach County has a huge debt system and um, other stories. And I feel that's helped a lot. Um, it's helped us to maintain our bond rating because what people don't realize, and I try to make them be able to taste this, is you know they're like, well, what difference does it make if we drop a quarter of a point? And I look at them and I say, but you, I need them. They'll say, I need the money for my community. And I'll say, you need the new school for your community too. You need to be able to have new sidewalks in your downtown areas so it appeals to people to come shopping in them. And it, it sort of changes their vision of what this means because what does a bond rating mean to anybody? So that's the kind of job I feel that I have. Speaking of schools, the uh, School Building Administration right now, how many, uh, about how many a year are, we, uh, are, are you financing now and, and how much... So one of the things I also did when I came in is I did, looked at were there ways in which we can fund more projects. And so uh, in my first year, we were able to up from 15 new schools till 26. And then um, we were able to meet all of the uh, accelerated repair requests. This year, we're very carefully watching the sales tax. Um, I know that we were rated by US News and World Report as the greatest state in the country. We have low unemployment, but um, our economists also show it's not always resulting in new sales. So we're being more cautious about the number of projects. Uh, we're trying to help communities um, work with them because it's really a local decision on whether or not they can do the override, whether they can afford their part of the project, um, but help them understand the cost per square foot, the decisions they're making, how can your, how can you, maybe you can have your auditorium and your, um, where you have lunch be flex space or your assembly halls. And so we're working on those kind of things to try to hold costs down and do as many projects as we can. Any Taj Mahal's on the horizon here? Or? We, you know, we give X amount. Uh, the Taj Mahal is what helped the new regs come into place. I won't mention what community that is. It's yeah, it's it's over ten years ago, believe it or not. But I think we, the Massachusetts School Building Authority, is not the SBA of the old days, and the Massachusetts School Building Authority today, um, we fund certain programs and certain events if other communities want. We had a community, I'll tell you, I won't mention the community, they wanted a larger auditorium. We said, you can do the auditorium larger, but you will have to pay for it and incremental costs and 
HVAC and all those things, we will take a percentage off of that when we qualify. Because if your community wants to do an override and pay for that larger auditorium, we won't stop you, but we can't fund that. And so it turned out that the community decided that they didn't have to do that. Anything else, Bruce, you'd like to add? Uh, just one last thing. You said you don't drink, you don't <laughs> smoke, and you don't gamble, and yet your, your office is overseeing all those three things. Um, is that, does that helpful in terms of being a regulator or is that, is that a hindrance? I don't think it affects, it just, it's who I was before I got to be treasurer. And, uh, so I, I think it doesn't influence me at all. You know, when we were in the food business, I didn't smoke cigarettes, but you could buy a pack of cigarettes at the supermarket. And, um, in fact, uh, if you were to go through all the aisles and look at every item that I might not have anything to do with then, there might have, I don't eat peppers, but there's certainly peppers in the produce department. So I, it doesn't influence me at all, except that I think that it, I do approach all of this uh, with a very um, business-like approach. And I look at, um, because what it is for me is I grew up in an environment where it was essential that we create economic stability and an economic driver within our state. And so for me, whatever the treasurer's office can do that creates economic opportunity and stability for folks, that's what I want to contribute to. It's why I created my college savings plan, the public-private partnership that um, we were very excited to be out in Lowell on Monday and kick off our middle school college savings plan because I know we need that skilled workforce to keep the companies here. MSBA, we did a job study and we saw, yeah, we need that skilled workforce, either vocational and technical training or sec post-secondary education. That's the biggest complaint that businesses have. So if I can add to making sure that happens, I am. And at the same time, it creates economic stability for those kids because they've got the match to get that good, the match of skills to get that good paying job. That was sort of our philosophy in our business lives. And that's what I bring to the treasurer's office. Well, I, I, I think we, we will end it, but you, you got to give us one thing. Give us okay, one what? bad habit that you have. I love potato chips. <laughs> well, that makes me feel better now. Okay. <laughs> really love potato chips. Uh, we'll have them for you the next time you come around. Well, I've been on a I've been on a self-discipline uh, diet lately, so I only will have one. 40 and I need the 40 off. The sea salted or uh, No, now it's cape if I eat them oh, it's got to be Oh, those don't cape. taste good. No, nope, oh, nope, they're nope, awful. No. Nope. I actually, <laughs> let me tell you, anything that had the word chip in it <laughs> Just, I want you to know when my staff is, was worried about me, I could open the drawer and you'd see every variety of potato chip in the drawer. <laughs> I know Steve Grossman was ice cream. I'm potato chips. <laughs> but I've switched now. I'm now non-fat Greek yogurt and fruit. Oh, uh, well... <laughs> I suppose that's a bad, semi-bad habit. <laughs> well, that's it for this week's episode of the podcast. We want to thank State Treasurer Deb Goldberg for joining us. Thank you, uh, Treasurer Goldberg. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or download it on iTunes or go to our website at www.commonwealthmagazine.org and click on the fish. Uh, for Bruce Mole, I'm Jack Sullivan. Thanks for listening and tune in again next week for another episode of the podcast. 